Amen. Acts chapter 17 is often talked about, or when people think about that chapter, Acts 17, they think about Paul's famous message to the Greek leaders and philosophers of the Mars Hill Council. But the chapter actually begins with Paul's ministry in a Macedonian city. Macedonia was what the northern part of Greece was called. The Macedonian city of Thessalonica. So Paul and his co-laborer Silas were only there for a matter of weeks before they had to leave town, before they were driven out of town. But nevertheless, by the grace of God, a church was established. Very young church, right? Only weeks old. I'd like you to consider what Paul wrote in his first letter to this new community of believers. Again, maybe only weeks or months later, Paul wrote these words. Look what he wrote here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Those who admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. How interesting that for a very young, spiritually young group of disciples, one of the things included in Paul's first letter to this body is meant to foster a healthy view of leadership. But when we think about it, when we step back, and think about the plan of God, the plan that God had, God has for bringing new life to the world. This makes perfect sense. You may remember that before he returned to the father, Jesus commissioned his followers to go into the world, to go to all nations and be witnesses for him, witnesses of his life. Witnesses of his death and resurrection. Witnesses of his lordship and his redemption. To call men, to call women, to call boys and girls, to follow him through the forgiveness and power now available because of Christ's work. But we've, all, we've also seen in the book of Acts how this mission, this commissioning, How this mission was accomplished by the establishing of churches, not just the conversion of individuals. That's helpful, isn't it? To get that big vision, the big picture of what God is doing. It's not just the conversion of individuals, but subsequently the establishing of churches. And we learn that part of establishing a church is establishing Leaders over that church. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 14 verse 23 that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them, these new disciples, in every church. Was Thessalonica an exception? No, because only weeks later, what is he saying? He's saying, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. So even though that church was nascent, it was, it was so young, 
Paul and Silas had already established leaders before they left. That's how important they knew this work was. I'd like to zero in on this idea of leaders this morning by thinking about how Paul spoke to just one group of church elders in just one of the cities in which he ministered. So look with me at Acts chapter 20. We will be camping out in verses 28 through 32 this morning. Acts chapter 20 verses 28 through 32. Chapter 20 describes how Paul was returning to the Middle East from Macedonia. And on his way, it says that he stopped at the um, eastern Aegean port city of Miletus. So verse 17 of this chapter tells us this. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, not too far away from Miletus, inland, and called the elders of the church to come to him. So what I want you to notice there is that Paul, in, I want you to notice in Paul's message to these elders is the way in which he points them back to the work in which, to which he has called them. He, he's taken this, he's gone, he's, he's heading back to the Middle East. He takes time while in port at Miletus to call for these elders. Why is this so important? You're going to see why this is so important. He takes the time to have these men travel that distance of a number of miles to get to the coast, to come to this port city. And and we want to be anticipating, thinking, why is he calling them? What does he want to tell them? Why is this so important? He is calling them here, as we will see, back to the work to which God has called them. The very thing that he told them when he appointed them as elders in this church. And let's be clear The New Testament knows no other kind of church governance except a plurality of elders. That's what it describes. So whatever you grew up with, I'd ask you to set it aside. Whatever you've seen out there, I'd ask you to set it aside if it does not line up with the New Testament witness, which is a plurality of elders leading the church. Now, this morning we're going to see and understand more about this role, this very important role But as we see here, the work to which Paul had called them, ultimately the work to which God had called them, was in essence this very same work that Paul was doing. Uh, He makes that clear in verses 18 through 27 of his address to these men. So look with me at his words picking up in verse 28 down through 32. He says to these Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace. 
which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So, this amazing address, this amazing charge and encouragement, we want to make sense of it this morning. And to make sense of these verses in, in terms of both interpretation and application, let's do a couple things. Let's look at a couple at this a couple ways. First of all, think with me about number one, Paul's description of the church. Paul's description of the church. We'll put it on the screen here. I know this brother's gonna do it here in just a second. Here it comes. Yes, there it is. I love you, Kedrick. <laughs> Verse 28, if you would look back at 28, the very first verse that we, that I read of this passage reveals three truths about this entity called the church of God. First of all, the church of God, as we see there, is the flock of God. The church of God is the flock of God. This is not a new idea, is it? This is a very common Old Testament image. Maybe best known from Psalm 23 where, where Yahweh, the God of Israel, is confessed as David's shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Most people know that Psalm. There's that imagery of the shepherd and the sheep. In the New Testament, what do we find? We find that Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. John chapter 10, verse 11. And Peter calls him the chief shepherd in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. But, but the imagery is more than just common. It is rich with reassurance. Reassurance of God's presence, of God's provision, of God's protection. Have you thought about that? It's the same thing David extolled in Psalm 23. God's presence, his provision, and his protection. That is the imagery that we have here with the church of God being referred to as the flock of God. We also read here in verse 28 that second, the church of God is his called out community. The church of God is his called out community. Some of you may remember that the word that Paul uses here, the word that we translate church, is the Greek word ekklesia. It was a common word, not a strange word. It was a common word that meant a a gathering of called out people, a called out assembly. Uh, Like when you grew up in school and they had an assembly in the gym, right? They would call you out of your classrooms and you would all gather in one place for that assembly. Guess what? This is the same word here. A called out group of people. Now when used in reference to God's people, the emphasis is on who has called us out, from where, and for what reason. And we find a great answer to that question in a verse like 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. Take a look at that. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says, it is God who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, that's the church. It's a group of people who have been called out by God from darkness into his marvelous light. And there we declare his praises. We live for him. So this is a called out community. Third, the church of God is, in light of verse 28, a blood 
bought people. We are a blood-bought people. Since God is spirit, we know that from John 4, we know that from other, t- the other places in Scripture. The reference in verse 28 is, of course, to Jesus as God the Son made flesh. He has blood, doesn't he? When it talks about the shedding of blood, we're talking about God the Son made flesh. As we sing about, as we celebrate with gratitude, we did that this morning, the price of our redemption was the precious blood of Jesus shed on the cross for our sins. This third idea actually brings us back. This blood-bought people brings us back to the first idea I mentioned. Because according to John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And what does the good shepherd do? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So the church of God, in this one verse, verse 28, the church of God is the called out, blood-bought flock of Jesus Christ. Is that your view of the church? Do you think in those exalted terms when you think about the church? The church is the called out, blood-bought flock of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, friends, there's simply no way to overemphasize just how special, how precious, how distinct the church really is. Now, with Paul's description of the church in mind... Let's think about number two, Paul's directive for the elders. We've talked about Paul's description of the church in verse 28, but we also see here in this passage Paul's directive for the elders. It's coming. You'll see it here in just a second. Let me stress that the apostles' charge here to the Ephesian elders is God's charge to every elder. Every elder. Now, this charge is summed up by two words from the passage, both found in verse 28. Take a look back at verse 28. And those two words are careful and care. Careful and care. These elders were to pay careful attention, care-filled attention, in order to care for the church of God. This precious, called-out, blood-bought flock of Jesus. Now, you'll notice that these men are instructed here to pay careful attention to two things. First, themselves, and second, to the people of God, to the flock. So again, Paul wants them to understand that part of caring for the church involves paying careful attention to themselves. And in the same way, caring for the church also involves paying careful attention to the individuals, to the faith family as a whole. But what does Paul mean when he charges them to pay careful attention to yourself? Like make sure you get there on time to the church. Make sure that your tie is straight when you walk in. I would already fail with that, right? Since I don't wear a tie. Consider then how Paul stressed the same thing. He he stressed the same thing to his younger associate, Timothy, while Timothy was serving in, you guessed it, Ephesus, (laughs) Same, same place. Timothy was serving in this same church, and he wrote, Paul wrote to him in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, take a look, 
Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. Persist in this. Notice how Paul connects yourself and teaching here. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Puts those two things together. And I think that connection is also present here in Acts chapter 20. Why do these men need to pay careful attention to themselves and the flock? Because verse 29, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And, wait for it, from among your own selves. Did you hear that? Where are these fierce wolves coming from? To be sure, outside the church, but also from among the leaders themselves. From among the leaders, Paul says, uh, men will, will arise, from the leaders will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. That's what threatens the flock of God. Twisted things being spoken. Twisted things being taught. Clearly, Paul is talking about twisted teaching here. What we might call false doctrine. And that's not just somebody waltzing in saying, Well, I believe Jesus is not God in human flesh. I'm here to plant the Aryan flag. That's not with a Y. That's A-R-I-A-N-I-ism, right? It's a Christology doctrine, not a racial thing. So... That would be very obvious, wouldn't it? We'd see that coming and say, oh, wow, this, we're not, this person should not have influence. We need to protect the flock. Oftentimes today, brothers and sisters, we know this twisted teaching is far more subtle. Far more subtle. Now, some of you might even be thinking about culture wars right now, I would guess. Oh, the world. Where is it going? Look what's happening. And I'm not here to minimize that. But remember, there is nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. Don't let those things shake you. Our God is in heaven and he does as he pleases. He sits on his throne. In fact, the greater threat has always been to the church. The more subtle, the more invasive lenses through which we view the world that are foisted upon us, sometimes in the name of a very good crusade to do this or that, a very good reform to make this or that change. But it's a lens that subtly, slowly begins to change the way that we see even the gospel, the way that we even understand ourselves and the world in which we live. We have to be on guard. We have to be ever vigilant of these very subtle changes and shifts in the culture because we are not immune to them. We are not immune. Every culture has its blind spots. We know this. And so we need the help of God's word. We need the help of generations past since we stand on the shoulders of spiritual giants. We need their help to examine our own place in history To make better sense of the dangers and threats that face the church. 
That's a little excursus, right? We're going to come right back to the main text here. But that's the false kind of twisted teaching. It could be that. It could be the very obvious false doctrines that we try to guard against. So yes, these leaders need to be vigilant and watchful of outside influences coming into the church, making sure that compromised beliefs, that corrupt teaching does not infect the church. The New Testament is full of examples of the kind of twisted teaching that the apostles had to counter, right? The way that that Paul would speak against the Judaizers, uh, or the, the pre-Gnostics of the, of that were attacking the Colossian churches. Or the way John, the Apostle John, in his letters had to take on also this kind of what seems to be neo or proto-Gnosticism. A kind of thinking about, well, Jesus really didn't come in the flesh. He was just a spirit, right? No, no, no. Jesus Christ really did come in the flesh, So you can just get hints of the things that these guys were battling coming from outside of the church. But as we see here, these men also needed to guard their own hearts. They needed to be vigilant with one another. And why is that? Because these leaders are not immune to temptation. Church leaders are not immune to apathy. They are not immune to compromise. The spiritual damage that an elder can cause is often more severe than someone from the outside. Why is that? Because of his position. Because of his influence. Because of his, the way that he's trusted by the flock. You see, Paul understood this. He knew it was a great danger. He wanted them to be on guard, telling them, you are not invincible, (laughs) right? You have not made it because you've been appointed an elder. You are just as susceptible, maybe in certain cases more susceptible, if pride finds its way into the mix. Be on guard. Pay careful attention to yourself. So if we move to verse 31, we find this attention or called, called their alertness, be alert. So this alertness, this attention is not simply about maintaining a defensive posture. It certainly is maintaining a defensive posture, being on guard about the things that are coming from the outside or coming up from inside of you. But as he did in the opening lines of his address, Paul reminds these leaders about the example he set among them. Was he always just having, just taking a defensive posture against threats from outside of the church? Well, no. He did help guard the church from external and internal threats, but he also regularly went on the offensive. How did he do that? Verse 31, admonishing everyone with tears. For how long? For three years, whether night or day. Isn't that, isn't that powerful? Three years, night and day, he is admonishing the church. What does admonish mean? It means to gently warn. It means to caution. 
So on a regular basis, Paul would warn the believers about the kinds of things that could derail them morally and spiritually. That's one of the ways that he did what he did. Three years, night and day, warning the brothers and sisters and saying, be careful, be on guard, give attention to yourself. So that kind of care and attention. But this admonishing ministry was bigger than that. How do we know that? Well, listen to Paul himself. This is Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. One of these handful of verses that really encapsulate or summarize the whole heart of Paul and his ministry. What was he doing? Why did he do what he did? Up and down one side of, you know, from one side of the Roman Empire to the other side of the Roman Empire, going through all the tribulations that he faced. Why did he go through those things? Verse 28, Colossians 1. Him we proclaim, warning, there's the same word, admonishing everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature or complete in Christ. You see, the warning or the admonishing wasn't separate from the preaching of Christ. It was the preaching of Christ. They preached Christ. And along with that came the encouragements, the comforts, the admonishments, sometimes the rebukes. He did all of these things. Why? That he might bring completion or maturity to the body of Christ. To the Galatians, he said, it's like a, I'm like a mother who is birthing you. And I want to see you birth in the fullness of, of, of life in Christ. I'm in labor pains now. Why? That Christ might be formed in you. This is what he's doing. His admonishing ministry looked like in its fullness. Now, now knowing that, it isn't surprising then to read the final verse in our study passage. Verse 32. Go back and look at that. He's charged them to be spiritually alert, specifically to pay careful attention to themselves and their own teaching, as well as the spiritual health and beliefs of the church. What, what does he do next? He concludes this section by commending them or committing them in verse 32, commending or committing these elders to God and the word of his grace. The word of his grace? What is that? The word of his grace. That has to be the gospel, right? Has to be the gospel. It's referred to earlier. Look at verse 24 of the same chapter. In verse 24, it's referred to as the gospel of the grace of God. And it was central to Paul's ministry. So if this church in Ephesus is to weather the storms and ward off the wolves... If it is to weather the storms and ward off the wolves as Paul has gathered these elders with that end in mind to strengthen them, that they would strengthen the church. If it is to do so, if this church way of grace in Buckeye, Arizona in 2021 is to weather the storm and ward off the wolves, it will ultimately be God's doing. It will be him doing it. The under-shepherds must look to the chief shepherd. They only stand because of him. They have no hope apart from him. Power to lead comes from the leader, capital L. That's where it begins. But one of the most important ways God sustains any church 
is the word of his grace. So we start with this big view of God, a sovereign God, a good God who upholds his church and protects his flock. The good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, raised, powerful, at the right hand of God, our high priest, watching over us. But then we ask, how does God accomplish? How does our Lord Jesus accomplish his work? He sustains the church by the word of his grace, the gospel. To be a gospel-centered church is to be a guarded church, a well-guarded church. It is to be a rooted church, an anchored church. Look back at how Paul spells out the same idea. He spells out the important role of the gospel in keeping a church healthy. Again, verse 32. This gospel is able to do what? It's able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified or set apart by the grace of God. You see, there are many churches even still today, and there have been for generations now, that think of the gospel and believe the gospel only to be the door into new life. And once you pass through that door and are saved, you graduate from the gospel. Oh no, brothers and sisters, we know that is not true. That is the exact opposite of what Paul is saying here. He's saying here that you need to, I'm commending you and committing you into God's hands and to the word of his grace. Because he knew the gospel was powerful. It could not be shackled even if he was wearing chains. The gospel was the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is not only the gospel that he received and which he declared to the Corinthians. It was the gospel in which they stood And as we see here very, very clearly, he is reminding them, this gospel is able to build you up. Not just save you, it's going to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I believe that means it's going to preserve you until the end. Keeping that gospel central So to be gospel-centered, what does a church need? It needs gospel-centered elders. Men built up in the gospel of grace. That's how they pay careful attention to themselves, right? They use the gospel toolbox to do that. They use gospel lenses to take a look at themselves and pay attention to themselves. When elders like this keep God and the gospel central in everything they do, the church is built up. Those who profess faith are preserved and those without Christ are saved. When such leaders keep first things first, not only are they equipped to recognize threats from both outside and inside the church, but they are equipped then to do the very thing Paul did for all that time in Ephesus. Look with me at verses 20 and 21 of this chapter. What did he do there? He said... He, he, he said how I, you know how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Testifying of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He gave them everything that was profitable. He even talks about giving them the whole counsel of God a few verses later. 
But don't you see, it was all anchored in the gospel. It was all about the word of his grace. That's what protected them. They didn't graduate from the gospel and get into deeper theology, right? Or they didn't get into better equipped for the culture wars. Or they didn't do all of these things, right? Some social cause that they were now involved with. Feeding the poor or doing these things. All of these things have their place in the mix. But we, they need to be ordered rightly. And they are not ordered rightly if the gospel is not put first. That's what Christ, that's what Paul is preaching here, how he's pointing these men to Christ. Though many of us have been exposed to a variety of traditions and titles, I'm not sure how you grew up, where you've gone to church, what you've seen, what you've experienced. Though we've been exposed to a variety of traditions and titles, we need to remember that the New Testament, the earliest record of Christian faith, the New Testament knows nothing of cardinals or chaplains or clerics. The New Testament knows nothing of padres or popes. It knows nothing of rectors or reverends. Or for that matter, youth pastors or executive pastors. It does know elders. It does know elders. Leaders, it also describes with the terms overseer and pastor, which just means shepherd. Three titles, yes, but all of them refer to the same Man, the elder speaks, the word elder speaks to his maturity. The word overseer speaks to his general calling uh, in the body of Christ. And the word shepherd specifies how he carries out that calling. He oversees the flock, but he doesn't do so as a king (laughs) ruling with a rod of iron. He does so as a shepherd overseeing the flock with care and concern the body so the elder slash overseer slash pastor or shepherd is one person in the new testament the word overseer a little historical side note the word overseer in greek is the word episkopos or episkopos it means to watch over it's the same word that was eventually translated bishop And bishops later in church tradition seemed to be leaders who were overseeing a region of churches, a group of churches. Again, this is not present in the New Testament. Episcopos is an overseer who is an elder of a local church. So this is really important to understand this. Along with the supporting role of the deacon This elder slash overseer slash pastor role is the position for which Paul provides qualification in both 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. There are the qualifications given. This is the leader to whom the apostle Peter wrote exhortations in 1 Peter chapter 5. And this is the position Paul and Barnabas filled when they planted church Churches across the Roman Empire, when they planted churches in fulfillment of Christ's commission, what did they do? They appointed elders. And of course, as we've seen this morning, it was the elders of Ephesus that Paul felt burdened to call for, to meet with, and to pray for. 
again, we can't stress the importance, can't stress enough the importance of this leader. But what does this, what does the importance of this role, this office have to do with you? Right? You might think, well, this is kind of a, a neat study or a seminary class or something I'm sitting in on, on, on church leadership. I've taken some notes. This is really interesting. Maybe it's kind of fine-tuned or corrected some thinking about how the church is structured. But what does it have to do with you? A good portion of you will never serve as an elder of a church. So why highlight this passage? How should you apply these truths? Well, there are a number of reasons why everyone should understand God's design for church leadership. We can't get into all of those reasons this morning, but for example, just to spot unhealthiness would be a good reason, right? <laughs> for, 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 the, for the flock, for the congregation, the body of Christ to be able to spot a, a counterfeit or an un, somebody unhealthy in that position. You need to know what God's design is first. But let me suggest this. Let me suggest one practical application this morning for, for all of us. To use the words of Paul himself. Take a look. In Colossians chapter 4 verse 3. He said, at the same time, Colossian believers, pray also for us. The Apostle Paul wasn't too proud to ask for prayer. He sought it. He knew the power of prayer. He knew, he knew how God wanted to use prayer in the fulfilling of his purposes. So he called the believers in Colossae to pray for him. And I'd encourage you to do that very same thing. In light of our passage this morning, let me suggest five ways you can pray for me. You can pray for Steve. You can pray for Christian. You can pray for the elders slash overseers slash pastors in our community. The ones that you know in another state, maybe another country, around the world. How do we pray for our leaders? This leader that God has placed in the church. This leader who is central to the fulfilling of the Great Commission. Did you see that? Right? The, not only conversion of individuals, but the establishing of churches is how the Great Commission is fulfilled. And what happened in all those churches? Right there, we saw it. Acts chapter 14, verse 23. Elders were appointed in all of these churches in order to establish them. You see, this, this role is not kind of a peripheral thing. It is central to the healthiness of the church and therefore the healthiness of the work of Jesus in the world. How can you pray in light of this? Now at the same time, remember, well we'll get to that in just a second. Five ways that you can pray for pastoral leaders everywhere, including right here in our faith family. Number one, pray that each elder, elder will remember and rejoice daily in the gospel of grace. Start there. Start by praying for these elders. Pray for me. Pray for Steve. Pray for Christian. That we will remember and rejoice daily in the gospel of grace. This is true for all of us, isn't it? We should be praying this for one another. There are so many distractions. There are so many temptations out there that pull each of us from the work of Jesus. And it pulls us from the hope of Jesus. Elders are not immune. Elders are no different. 
We need your prayers. We need your prayers that we would daily give attention to our own hearts in light of the gospel. Please pray for us in that way. Number two, pray that the elders would keep watch over one another. That we would keep watch over one another. It's very easy to come together as leaders and to focus only on a to-do list. Man, this is my downfall. I'm thinking, what needs to be done next? Making lists, right? Getting things accomplished. Maybe you're like me in that way. It's very easy to assume that others are spiritually healthy in that equation. Why? Because we're all leaders, right? Well, we're the leaders. We're all spiritually healthy. Of course we are. We're the leaders. (laughs) No, 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 no. Everyone... Even though people think all these leaders are all spiritually healthy, they're the the spiritually kind of cream of the crop here, the top dogs. No, we need your prayers and we need daily the grace of God. We're not immune to the same struggles that all of you face. We all as believers need to support one another. Again, elders are no exception to that. Pray that we as a band of brothers would truly care for one another in light of Paul's words here, that we be vigilant with one another and whoever God would add to our mix, to our number in the days to come. Number three, pray for the elders' regular recognition of the church's true identity. Pray for the elders' regular recognition of the church's true identity. The demands and difficulties that come with life-on-life ministry week in and week out, or the latest church growth techniques that are being peddled to to church leaders can easily skew our view of the church into an organizational box. Things to get done, right? Things to be handled, people to be helped, people to be placated maybe, right? Things to be structured, all of these things. So we can either get this kind of consumeristic, organizational mindset of what the church has to be or needs to do, or we can get kind of worn down by the demands of life and people and the messiness of everything, all of our lives, that you stop, that you stop seeing the beauty, the power, the glorious reality of what this is. This is the precious, called out, blood-bought flock of Jesus. That's who we are. This is the bride of Christ, the church. It is easy to lose sight of the exalted nature of the church. But as we've been reminded this morning, the church is so glorious. Far more glorious. Paul just hints at it with his words here, reconnecting with the elders, helping them to see, don't you know who this church is? This is the church of God, fellas. This is the church that he has made you overseers of. Who? It's a flock. His sheep. And he bought them with his own blood. Shouldn't you be careful with that? 
right? Like carrying some kind of precious artifact, you know, million dollar Fabergé egg or something. You're going to be careful with it. You're going to be you're going to be mindful of what you're doing, moving that around or taking care of it. The same view is the view that we as elders need to always keep in mind to not miss, to not, to not be distracted from the church's true identity according to the word of God. Number four, pray that each elder would smell like the sheep. Yeah, pray that each elder would smell like the sheep. You can't provide for, you can't protect the sheep, the flock of God, unless you're among the sheep. Unless you're with the sheep. So pray for that diligence and deepening love for the body of Christ. That we would learn better to be involved in your lives. Now, also pray that all of us would open the door just a little more to allowing God's care to flow through these leaders. So the prayer for the elders should be coupled with a prayer for the body at large. We cannot care for you if you keep that door locked. If you put walls up, we're not getting over those walls. And if that's the case, you cannot be in that position and say, no one cares for me, right? These elders don't, don't take care of me. Well, are you allowing them to take care of you? So pray that that would happen, even just a little bit, and that God could use that to build a relationship of trust step by step by step by step. We know that for many of you, that it, that takes a lot to open that door just a crack. Takes takes a lot to maybe take the uh, concertina wire off the top, take the barbed wire off the top of the wall, <laughs> maybe take a level off that wall just a little bit. We know that's important, and we want to earn your trust to say that it's it's safe, that we want to care for you, we want to we want to help the body to care for you well. Pray that we would smell like the sheep. Number five, finally, pray for discernment and courage in the elders' gospel center provision and protection. This work of provision and protection. When we discern real concerns in the church, whether it's in our own hearts, whether it's in another leader, or in the flock itself, it takes humble courage and wisdom to speak up in the right way. To step forward in the right way. To address those concerns in a way that glorifies God. So pray for that discernment and courage for us. Pray that we would do that very thing for the sake of the church and her witness in the world. Discernment, courage in our work of gospel-centered provision and protection for the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, where do such prayers come from? Five suggestions for prayers. Where do these prayers come from? From what spring do they flow? From a heart full of Jesus and a love for his work. So please don't hear me up here giving you a list of things that you can take home and put on the fridge. And I need to, I need to pray through these. The pastor said pray for these. Yeah. But do so open to the work of the Holy Spirit, maybe through those prayer requests, but also through your daily walk with Christ, to pray from a heart 
that is full of love for Jesus and loves what Jesus loves, his work in this world of bringing new life to people. That's how, that's what should drive us to these prayers, right? Even if God uses the prayers themselves to help form that heart in us, we don't want to miss the heart. Because if we miss the heart and we keep missing the heart, we're going to end up like the Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes. We're going to end up with a heart that's far from God, even though we're, our lips are talking about him. We don't want that. We don't want to be in that place. So give attention to your heart and know that these kinds of prayers ultimately, ideally flow from a heart full of Jesus, a love for his work. You see, to be gospel-centered, a church does need gospel-centered leaders, but it also needs gospel-centered disciples. A church needs gospel-centered worshipers and servants to encourage and pray in light of the heart of Jesus. Brothers, sisters, may the word of his grace daily drive us each to pray daily with gratitude that together we are his precious, called out, blood-bought flock. Amen? Amen. Let's ask God to help us in that way.